and continuing in our study in John 19. The text before us moves Jesus from Gabbatha to Golgotha. Gabbatha was a stone pavement, a place of judgment. There's a beam of seat there from which Pilate proclaimed the condemnation of Jesus. Jesus was taken from Gabbatha, the place of judicial proceedings, to Golgotha. Golgotha means the place of a skull, a place of death and execution, a place you go to die. The movement in the text is from official pronouncement to harsh reality. In last week's text, we saw Pilate finally cave to the religious leaders as they pushed him to surrender to their will and have Jesus crucified. He sat on his judgment seat, you remember, and tried one more time to get Jesus released and claimed to them, here is your king. And they cried out for his crucifixion with even greater hatred. Pilate capitulated and condemned Jesus to be executed. And now in verse 17, we move to the reality. The rest of John 19 lays out for us the awful reality and the glory of redemption's cost. This judgment of our sin upon our Savior is seen in these verses. Jesus is led from Gabbatha to Golgotha. It's a road of great shame and agony and of certain death. And it's a road that we'll see with Jesus alone is one of glory. John 19 verse 17 says this, So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Wouldn't take me long to convince you that Jesus has been unlike any other man in life and ministry. We've seen his humanity and in that sense he's like every other man. He had no form nor comeliness as Isaiah 52 says that We should look on him and long for him. Nothing set him apart as the Messiah in his appearance. What set him apart as the Messiah was everything else about him. His authoritative teaching and his miraculous power. He proved through his life that he was the one sent from heaven on a mission of revelation and of redemption. The simplest encounters with Jesus in his life and ministry became extraordinary and supernatural, right? Just think back to John chapter 4, this very normal encounter when he is with his disciples on a trip and they're thirsty. It's about noon and the disciples go to buy food and a woman comes to the well to draw water and this very normal interaction becomes soul-changing and eternity-opening for a whole town in Samaria. Only Jesus could do that. Or think of his interaction with blind Bartimaeus on his way to, to Jericho for the last feast. And as he heads up to, Jer- uh, up to Jerusalem through Jericho, Bartimaeus hears a crowd and starts crying out for help. 
a very normal thing for a blind beggar to do. But with Jesus, nothing's normal like that. Jesus turns his attention to Bartimaeus and this interaction heals Bartimaeus of his physical blindness, but more importantly, of his spiritual blindness. In fact, the Gospels are a highlight reel, aren't they, of of normal things becoming unbelievably glorious things in the life of Jesus? As he interacts with the dead, touches them, and they're raised back to life, as he sees the deaf and the blind and speaks to them and they can hear and see again, as he sees the lame and touches their body and they're gloriously healed, as he sees the leper whom no one else will have anything to do with, but Jesus touches them with his hand and they're gloriously healed. And he teaches with authority like none had ever heard before. All of this, in all of its normalcy and ordinariness, displays the glory of Jesus, the Messiah. So we shouldn't come to this text and expect to see anything different, should we? We should come to a very normal occurrence in the Roman Empire. And we should expect that as Jesus heads from Gabbatha to Golgotha, that it's going to become a place of of His glory. It's normally a place of incredible shame and agony and certain death. But for Jesus, and only for Jesus... Does this walk, carrying His cross, being crucified in Golgotha, become a display of His glory? If you're taking notes this morning, there is no noticeable outline. You might just make two columns on your page, one glory and one shame. Probably reverse them, put shame first and then glory. As we walk through the text, just make notes of how you see the shame that is heaped upon Jesus and then how you see his glory. The shame of this journey from Gabbatha to Golgotha strikes us right away in verse 17, doesn't it? He went out, the text says, and bearing his own cross to the place of a skull. What's the shame here, you might ask? Well, Jesus had already been beaten and mocked and had his beard plucked and a crown of thorns pressed down into his head and a purple robe put over his wounds and blood dried and then ripped off again whipped with the brutal instrument of torture which tore his flesh and exposed his organs and his very skeleton, leaving him teetering on the brink of death. And now he's been condemned officially by Pilate to go to the place of execution and die. And here they make him bear up under the weight of his own cross and carry it so that he can die upon it. This is another layer of the shame of this process that the Romans had perfected. They make the accused and the condemned take with them their cross and and carry it one step at a time because no one is that low to carry the cross of a criminal condemned to die. He's not worthy of that kind of help. Luke tells us that there was a great multitude following Jesus along with two other criminals who were also being led to Golgotha to be executed. This is a very public moment. This is obvious shame. And in the Roman world, you didn't wear a cross on your necklace or put it in your ear or have it on your shirt or carry it around for fun, right? 
The cross meant you were going to die on that cross. If you were seen with a cross, it meant you were condemned and about to die. This is a shame-filled road to execution. But here then is this scene of his glory, our Lord Jesus. It can only be true of him. John says that they took Jesus and that he went out. He says both things. He could have just said one, but he says both. They took Jesus. He's under their control. But Jesus also went out bearing his own cross. This is sure fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53.7 where he says that the Messiah will be led like a sheep to the slaughter. He did not have to be driven. He did not have to be commanded he did not have to be beaten like so many other prisoners did. And imagine yourself in that moment. You've been condemned to die and they're going to make you carry your cross. Don't you think in your heart of hearts you'd say, go ahead, make me. What are you going to do, kill me? Right? Jesus willingly picks up his cross and begins the journey like a sheep led to the slaughter. This shows us that his death is by his own volition, of his own choice. And in keeping with his own resolve. He had said that already in chapter 10 when he said that no man takes my life from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. This is Jesus laying down his life of his own accord. Journeying to Golgotha carrying his cross. If you're thinking in the whole scope of scripture. This reminds you of another who had to carry the wood for his sacrifice too, right? All the way back in Genesis 22, Isaiah as Abraham, or Isaac, excuse me, when Abraham was called to sacrifice his son. I've got Isaiah on the mind from Isaiah 53. When Abraham's called to, to take his son, Isaac, and to, to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, and he tells his son to carry the wood for the sacrifice. And you remember somewhere along the journey, Isaac says, but, but dad, where's the, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Well, Yahweh intervened and spared Isaac's life. Testing Abraham's faith, seeing he was willing to obey, even the death of the promised son, provided a ram caught in a thicket as a sacrifice. Here in John 19, we see a greater Isaac, don't we? That which was foreshadowed in Genesis 22 is here greater fulfillment of the real and true Isaac carrying the wood for his sacrifice to his place of execution. This is our Savior's glory. But here again, we see his shame, don't we? The name Golgotha means the place of a skull. Its counterpart in Latin is Calvaria, which we get the word Calvary. It means the place of death. Some have identified it with Gordon's Calvary, if you're into archaeology at all. and It's an outcropping or a hill that looks like a skull. It even looks like it has eye sockets. It's kind of creepy looking at it, actually. We don't know if that was actually the hill or not. Some would die on that hill saying it is. We don't know if it is or not. But it certainly was some kind of of outcropping or hill just outside the city walls which resembled the crown of a skull. But the point of John's text is that no one went to, to Golgotha condemned and then came out alive. This is a place of death. You left Gabbatha, the place of judgment, and you went to Golgotha, the place of execution. That's precisely what John says in verse 18. Four simple words. There they crucified him. 
That's it. The gospel writers say precious little about the physical agony of crucifixion. There's been a lot of study over the last few decades, especially in the Christian realm, over how terrible crucifixion was. And it's necessary for us to know that because we don't see that. These readers of John's gospel had seen a crucifixion. So we know from our studies of how they would lay the condemned on the cross, on the ground, and with spikes the size of railroad spikes, maybe even bigger, would drive them through each wrist spread out and through the ankles. And then they would take the cross and drop it into a pre-made hole. And on that drop, all of the victim's joints would come out of place as they hit the ground with a thud. Thereby fulfilling, by the way, Psalm 22, when he said that I'll be poured out like a river and all my joints will be out of place. Beyond that, we know of the the horrors of crucifixion from a medical standpoint of, of not being able to breathe in that position and having to rely upon the the weight of of your body being pulled up by the spikes through your wrists and your ankles to gasp for air. Prolonging your death, but you couldn't just not breathe, and so you're fighting yourself, and you're fighting the instrument of your execution. This intense pain over the whole body produces all kinds of tension and Muscle spasms and feverish conditions as you teeter on the brink of expiration. The Romans had perfected the cross as a means to deter others from crime and political uprisings. They had perfected it by making it cruel and making it prolonged and making it public and making it deadly. They made it cruel in the sense that there was no worse way to die. They had tried them all. And this was the way they had seen their condemned die the hardest and the worst. It was cruel. It was also prolonged. Part of the cruelty was to make it last as long as possible. It would last for sure for hours, often for days. It was not only prolonged, but it was public. These executions always took place in very public places. So that everyone would be warned, don't do what this person did or you'll end up like them. Don't cross the Roman Empire or you'll end up on a cross just like this guy. And it was deadly, meaning it was publicly certifiable that that person on that cross died. Nobody came down from a Roman execution stake alive. No one swooned into the grave and awoke three days later with life. It was a sure means of death. It was a place of great shame. And here we see then the glory of our Savior, don't we? He had contrived to be sure that he died by this means of execution. He couldn't be stoned by the Jews outside the city, which would have been normal practice. He had contrived to make sure that he was condemned by Rome and hung on a cross in a public and certifiable place where no one after his death on the cross would say, you know what, I think he might have lived through it. No one thought that. Everyone knew he died. This is the glory of Jesus to make sure that he went to this place to die this death on purpose for you and for me. 
the shame deepens in verse 18. We're told that he was crucified with two others, one on either side. Jesus between them, or literally in the middle, in the midst of them. He's literally in the midst of convicted criminals at his death. Matthew uses the same word for criminal that John does of Barabbas. So these are likely associates of Barabbas or in the same political uprising movement as Barabbas. These are insurrectionists. These are guys who perform guerrilla warfare on the Roman army. They do whatever they can to, to catch Rome off guard and to overthrow them and hopefully get them out of their city, out of their land. It's among them that Jesus is numbered at his death. The clear insinuation, the, the thing Rome wants you to know is that he's just like them. The guy in the middle is no different than the guy on the left and the right. They're all the same. They're all condemned to die. What should be to Jesus' shame, though, is actually a display of his glory, right? So think about him being in the middle of sinners at his death. It's another glorious fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and verse 12, where he predicted that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. Here he is numbered with the transgressors. He's in the middle of two others. He's flanked on each side by those worthy of death. And yet our Lord is not one of them, and yet he is with them. He's in their midst. He's contrived to make sure he's there between them. Isn't this how Jesus lived and served? Isn't this exactly what he came to do and be? Isn't that what John told us in John 1, that he came to, to tabernacle among us? to be in our midst so that he might reveal the Father to us and redeem us to the Father? Isn't this exactly how you see him in the Gospels? He's, he's ministering to the blind and, and to the sinners and to the harlots and to the publicans and he's with them. He eats with them as he calls them to repentance and faith. This is the glory of Jesus coming from heaven to earth to be among us, to be in the middle of us. And as he lived, so too did he die, right? In the middle of sinners. What a glorious Savior. Just like he served us, so does he die for us. Identified with transgressors. But it doesn't stop there, does it? You know that. You know the rest of the story. What happens after his resurrection? Does he resurrect and say, okay, see ya, you're on your own. Best of luck to you. Of course not. What does he do? He goes to the upper room and he's in their midst. He's with them again, proving to them, listen, everything I told you about myself is true. Get busy for me. Then he goes to ascend, and when he ascends, what does he say? After my ascension, I'll send to you my spirit who will be in you and with you. So much so that he says in Matthew 18 that you, when a brother sins against you and you confront and they don't repent and eventually you have to get all the way to the, the church level of making it public. He's, he promises in Matthew 18 where two or three of you are gathered, the smallest number, to do my will, namely church discipline in that text. There I am in the midst. With you. I'm with you. 
not only that, but how does Revelation 1 describe Jesus in the vision that John had? You remember that? John has his vision of the churches. The churches are represented by seven candlesticks. Where's Jesus in relationship to the candlesticks? Do you remember? In the middle. Right in the midst of his churches. That is a show-stopping thought. We know so little of what's going on in our own church, let alone in the churches around us. Jesus is in the middle of them all. Knows what's happening in every one of them. And is at work to build his church for his glory. Do you remember the end of the story, Revelation 21 and 22? The end of John's vision, the end of all time, the new heaven and the new earth? Where is God in relationship to those who enter into his eternal kingdom? Do you remember? 21, 4, and 5. He's with them. He is their God, and they are his people, and he dwells with them, and they with him. What a beautiful picture of our God. This is the glory of our Savior. He came to be with us and to die between us, as it were, so that we could be eternally with him. There's more glory here to Jesus being in the middle of these transgressors. Augustine makes it the, the point that there are three very different people here being crucified on Calvary's hill. One of them being crucified is the savior of sinner, sinners. The one being crucified is a sinner about to be saved. Luke tells us about that. The penitent thief who looks to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom and your paradise. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So one of them's a sinner about to be saved and another one's a sinner about to be condemned. And you know who makes the difference between those two sinners that flank Jesus on either side? You know what makes the difference in their destinations? The guy in the middle. The savior for sinners. The one sinner who's about to be saved is saved because of the guy in the middle. The one who's dying for sinners like him. The guy who's the sinner who's about to be eternally condemned, who's going to die in his sinful rebellion. He's going to die, and with his last breath, he's going to mock Jesus. Just like everyone else around. And he'll be condemned to die because of his rebellion, his refusal to believe in Jesus. Friend, you and I are in one of those two categories. That's all there are in humanity. Those who are sinners who are saved and about to know that salvation in eternity and those who are sinners who are going to be condemned. And what makes the difference there as we heard read from Titus 3 is not our good works, not our church attendance, not our family affiliation, not our public profession of Jesus through baptism. What makes the difference is Jesus himself the Savior of sinners who dies in the place of sinners to rescue them from their sin. Peter tells us that Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree. He tells us that Jesus died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 9 verse 28 tells us that Christ was sacrificed once for all to take away the sins of many. 
Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene and said that the Christ would be pierced for our transgressions, that he would be crushed for our iniquities, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Friend, has the Lord laid your iniquities on this Jesus, the man on the middle cross? He is your only hope. Has he borne your condemnation? Do you know life in him? There's one more attempt to shame Jesus in our text. I want to draw your attention to that in verses 19 to 22. These are details that John gives us that the other gospel writers do not. He wants us to know this happened. That there's this controversy between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. It's standard operating procedure in the Roman Empire to to write out a placard for each criminal that's condemned to die. Normally that would happen after they were condemned at Gabbatha, at the Bema seat. Then there was a placard taken and the man's name and his place of birth or place of origin would be placed there on the placard and then the charges against him would be written there. Why? Because they wanted everyone to know, don't do what he did if you don't want to end up like he is. They would take that placard and they would have someone march in front of the condemned all the way to the place of execution, announcing all the way why this person was being condemned to die, why they were being executed. And then once they got to the place of crucifixion, they would take that placard and they would nail it to the cross, the execution stake. Matthew tells us it was above the head of Jesus, so we know it's a T-shaped cross. They put that placard above our Lord's head to say this is why he is dying, why he is being executed. So Pilate follows standard procedure, has this placard made for Jesus. But I ask you, what's he going to write? What's he going to write? He's already convinced that Jesus is not guilty, right? We've seen five different times he has tried to get out of putting Jesus to death. He does not believe Jesus deserves to die. He's convinced he is not the insurrectionist they say he is. Pilate doesn't believe the charge that the Jews have brought of blasphemy. He doesn't believe in the Jews' God, nor does he think someone who blasphemes that God is worthy of death. So what exactly is Pilate going to write? He writes, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. You could easily read that two different ways. You could read that as Pilate making a statement of, of his belief in Jesus as the king of the Jews probably a stretch. Pilate is very sensitive to what's happening here. He has been fundamentally changed by his personal interviews with Jesus. He knows Jesus is unlike any other man, unlike any other person condemned to die. So maybe he thinks Jesus is actually the king. Unlikely. More likely is that he has taken one last opportunity to take a shot at the Jewish leaders. They have played this political game and they have put him in a spot he can't get out of. They threw down the trump card that if you're really Caesar's friend, you will crucify this man. He knew he couldn't get out of that, so he condemned him to die. This is his his last political maneuver to say to the Jews, there, take that. You think you control this situation? Well, maybe you do, but I control this at least. And so he writes on the placard, Jesus of Nazareth, King of of the Jews and has it marched in front of Jesus to this very public place. John says it's 
just outside the city walls. It's on a high-trafficked area. John says that Pilate has it written in three different languages so that many Jews will be able to read it. The chief priests are, as you can imagine, outraged. They can't believe that this Jesus is now getting this free advertising, as it were, of his real status. And they then prove their unbelief all the more as they say and petition Pilate to say, change it from the king of the Jews to this man said I am the king of the Jews. This, by the way, is the basis of their unbelief. Jesus had given them every reason in the world to believe that he was king of the Jews. He had proven it. He had validated it and verified it every way he could imagine. And yet, in their spiritual blindness, they refused to believe it. And so they demand that the sign be changed to a claim rather than to a fact. And lots of people want to do that with Jesus right now. It's fine for you to make a claim about him. You you believe about him whatever you want to believe about him. But don't raise it to the level of fact that Jesus is indeed the creator of the universe, that he is indeed God in the flesh, that he is indeed the righteous sacrifice for sinners, that he is indeed the dividing line between all humanity, that your eternity rises or falls based on what you do with Jesus. Don't raise him to that level of fact. Keep him in the level of conjecture and we'll get along just fine. This is the the basis, the core of so much of unbelief. Pilate, as you know, will not bend. He had no resolve to release Jesus. He tried but couldn't get it to happen and finally bent. And now he decides to plant his standard here. No, no, what I have written, I have written. It cost him little. It was a political maneuver in which he could say, I have the truth authority here. It's unlikely, by the way, that the chief priest then went to Golgotha for any other reason than this. They knew Jesus would go there and die. They didn't want to just see him die. They wanted to go and set the record straight. They wanted to make sure everybody who passed by seeing Jesus with this sign above him, the king of the Jews, knew that that wasn't true. In fact, I want you to see what they say. Turn with me to Matthew 27. Look at it real quickly. Matthew 27. Notice the two-pronged approach of their mockery of Jesus as he hangs on the cross in this moment of John 19. Matthew 27, verse 39. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Does that sound familiar? They're reading the sign, essentially. He's he's a king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. See, this was the two-pronged claim of Jesus, that he was indeed the Messiah, and he was God in the flesh. They rejected him at both points, and now they mock him as he hangs on the cross and want everyone to know this is not true. This is his claim, not reality. But indeed, the sign stood, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This is his shame, but also this is where we see his glory. 
what Pilate wrote as an act of resistance against the Jews and what the Jewish leaders rejected out of hand really is the truth of the matter, isn't it? We agree with Pilate. What is written is written. By the providence of God, let it stand for all time. For it is true for all time. Jesus is King of the Jews. He is their promised one. He is their Messiah. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the seed of David. He is their ruler and Lord. He is their sinless substitute, the great high priest who gave himself as a sacrifice for their sins. He is the king who came to offer the kingdom to his people. He did end up on this cross because his people rejected his authority. He is returning to bring His kingdom to earth, to rule and reign over His people. But glory be to God, not just His people, all people. He will prove not just to be King of Israel, but because He is King of Israel, He will be King over all peoples. Ruling all Gentile nations, bringing them all under His authority. Having kingdom power over all that He has made all that He has redeemed, and all that He will one day condemn. He will stand as King on His throne, and He will part the sheep from the goats for all eternity. And those who are His will be welcomed in to His eternal kingdom, eternally present with Him and He with us. Where there will be pleasures and joy forevermore, as Psalm 16 says. Truly it is true. Jesus is King of the Jews and King of all. This is sure fulfillment of Paul's words in Philippians 2 verse 9 where he makes so clear that this one who has so humbled himself in verse 8 and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, will also be the one who is highly exalted at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of things in heaven, of things in the earth, and of things under the earth. That Jesus Christ is Lord, King, Master, Ruler, over all to the glory of God the Father. This is why when he returns in Revelation 19, it will be written on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is truly the King of kings. Friend, He is the dividing point between all all humanity. You're either in His kingdom as one forgiven or you're not in His kingdom continuing to rebel against Him one day facing His judgment and condemnation. Know today that you can be forgiven right now. You can lay down your arms of spiritual warfare against the one who made you. He's sent for you a peace agreement. He's brought it to you through His Son, Jesus Christ. He's made a way possible for you to to have peace with the King who made you and rules over you. But it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done for you. Have you laid down your arms of rebellion? Have you turned and run to Jesus Christ as your only hope? Have you seen in His death 
the glory which gives you life. If you have not yet, may today be the day of your salvation. Look to Jesus Christ and live. Believe upon our Lord Jesus and be saved. Brother or sister, the application for our life is that we follow our Lord carrying His cross. He carried a cross of shame in our place. Can we not also follow Him? Should we not also abandon our self-exalting, self-protecting ways in this life? He who gave all for us, should we not be quick to lay down all for Him? If in this man's death we are given life, should we not take up His cross and follow His lead? Shouldn't we be dead to the world and its enticements? Shouldn't we be dead to our sinful lusts as we follow our Lord? Shouldn't we stop giving cover to all the ways that the the world has infiltrated our thinking and our loving and our acting? And shouldn't we ask God to expose the darkness remaining in us by the light of His Word and conform us to the Lord Jesus so that we can say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. This isn't about me anymore. This is about the Lord Jesus. Everything I have and am, everything I own, every breath I take, every word that comes out of my mouth, every desire I have in my heart is shaped by His cross. And I want to be like Him. Doesn't this man on the middle cross change everything? but how we now live. And doesn't he also give you unending and unconquerable joy and hope? He left Gabbatha and went to Golgotha bearing your shame and mine. He suffered so you will not have to. So I ask you, can you rest assured That this shame which turned into Jesus' glory guarantees that you also will share His glory? If He could do such a work as this to, to make something so terrible, be so wonderful, can't He do that for you? Hasn't He promised to do that for you? Aren't you seated in heavenly places with Him? Don't you share the eternal riches of his glory, both now and into eternity? Beloved, turn your eyes to Jesus. See in him your glorious hope and your greatest joy. Let's pray together. God in heaven, thank you for this text which clearly makes known the suffering and shame of our Lord. which also displays the glory of Jesus. We ask that you'd help us to take by faith that which we have heard and to be shaped by the cross work of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.